Oxford University Press provides a wide range of resources so that you have everything you need to support your teaching of geography. Student books and digital resources on Caboodle blend expertly, helping you to create a coherent curriculum and connect learning in school and at home. Accessible and exciting courses range from Key Stage 3 through to A-Level and include schemes of work and built-in assessment to save you time. Meanwhile, our best-selling revision guides and workbooks support students to consolidate learning throughout the year. Visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash geography to find out more. Hello and welcome to JogPod. Today I'm really pleased to say I'm joined by Dr Agatha Herman. And um, congratulations are in order, Agatha. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, you're now Senior Lecturer in Human Geography and you're also the Course Director for the MSc in Food Politics and Sustainability at Cardiff University. This is going to sound a little bit like um, this is your life, but your key interests lie in geographies of ethics and justice in particular exploring questions and relations of power, social resilience and social practices through a focus on production spaces. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Although it feels like there should be some kind of big photo book or something and we're talking through all my interests. Give me more pointers or something. <laughs> well, anything that we do talk about, we can put references in so that when people are listening, they can be looking at that photo book anyway. Ah, so lovely. We'll put in links and, and things. So one of the areas that you're investigating is the capacity of certified fair trade to promote resilient and ethical development. Now that's within and beyond its producer communities. When I was reading about this, this focuses on the wine sector and yep. um, it's involved overseas field work in Argentina, Chile, Germany, Finland, South Africa and Sweden. So I am just picturing the field work now. Um, it sounds like an excellent area of research to me. <laughs> That's a response I get a lot. And I think a lot, a lot of people who aren't familiar with geography are also always surprised. that They say, I didn't know that was geography. And like, well, if you think about it, everything's geography ultimately, really. And there's so many sort of fascinating things you can do and places to go and explore. And yeah, I happen to settle on the wine industry and... Luckily, these are like really beautiful places to visit. You know, picture, you know, mountains, like vineyards set inside like beautiful vegetation, big skies overhead. But also, it's obviously, it's a lovely place to be, but it's also so fascinating from sort of the social side, the political side, the environmental side as well. Because it's not just about going and tasting lots of nice wine, although that's a... That is definitely a bonus, but it's all about the it's about the people and the, the communities and all those sorts of connections and relationships and emotions that are really kind of invested and tangled up in creating what is a luxury and delicious product. And it works on a macro and a micro scale. So you can even be talking about the different soils and the slope aspects, which is the sort of thing I might have been doing as an A-level teacher. Can you yeah. Now that impacts on the wine. <clears throat> so in South Africa, you're exploring this idea of, of empowerment. Mm. 
and ethical commodity networks. So it, it, it embodies fair trade. It's, we, we'll be talking about food justice. We'll be talking about capacity building development. So there's, there's a huge amount that we can unpick here. And I, when I did a little bit of research, a lot of it's directly relevant to A-level teachers, I think. The OCR A-level topic is on the future of food and it asks questions about what's food security and why is it of global significance? It asks about the causes of inequality. It asks about threats to global food security. AQA looks at global and regional patterns of food production, consumption, and the ethics of that. So you, you could be pro providing completely different case studies from the ones that students will read about in textbooks. Mm. Um, and, and that's really what examiners are, are really excited about when a student comes up with something that wasn't in the textbook. Oh, that's something novel. That's yeah. it, it, the wine industry has had a difficult history, hasn't it, in South Africa? It's, um, it was associated for a long time, I suppose, really, with white power and black exploitation. And, and it still is, is dogged by allegations of, of poor working conditions and, and labour abuses. So I'd like to talk to you about that. But, but I want to unpick just the difference between power and empowerment first. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, these are, these. I think these are really key terms when thinking about South Africa and it's not just the wine industry, but it's like its broader history and that history of um, slavery, of colonialism, of apartheid, and then moving into the post-apartheid era as well. And while there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of opportunity, at the same time, there are still these persistent and significant challenges sort of within um, society and the economy, culturally, politically as a whole. And so understanding power, and I really kind of, when I was trying to talk about this in, in, in the book, I really struggled with like how to sort of, how do you actually pull apart what power is? Because for a lot of us, we see it as, it's like, oh, it's just, it's obvious, but then we try to put it into words, it becomes really difficult. But I see power as something that emerges through the relationships between, say, different actors, maybe different people or institutions or communities. So it's not it's not a property. It's not something that we sort of have inherently, but it's, it's that effect of those social interactions. And so this means that it can constantly change. That's why we might feel like we have power in one situation, but not in another one. And so it's always experienced and exercised through particular contexts, spaces and times and things. Clearly, obviously, those who have more resources, whether that's sort of financial or political or economic, have a lot greater capacity to exercise that power. But we can't, we can't confuse resources with power because everyone has at least some access albeit like different and diverse levels, but they have some access to power. Obviously empowerment is very much connected and very much tangled up in all of this. And so I understand empowerment as that process through which people develop the capabilities to participate in, um, make changes, and importantly hold accountable those individuals and organizations and institutions that impact on their lives so it's really about empowerment is about being able to imagine a different world 
So in a sense, it's both an end point is something you can do. You can sort of imagine this different world. And it's that continuing journey to helping you get those resources, make those connections, have those capabilities to enact that difference. That book that you mentioned is the one Practicing Empowerment in Post-Apartheid South Africa, isn't it? Yeah. Ethics and Development. Yeah. Even though it it was published a couple of years ago, I still remain very proud of it because it's a book. And there's just something so marvellous about having written a book and being able to hold it. It is lovely. And it, you investigate the positive changes in that, don't you? And um, But there are positive changes, but there's also development challenges, mm. which you outlined there. Perhaps you could just summarise those key ideas for us. Yeah. So I do try and I do try and take a positive but obviously like a critical look so try and take a little balanced perspective acknowledging the challenges but trying to know like take note of the the hope the opportunities so in in the book sort of my key my key thing is looking at how empowerment is actually experienced and practiced by those marginalized individuals and communities that it actually targets and it's about how understanding how this big concept because empowerment is a is a phrase that's banded around at all levels by you know the big multilateral institutions like the world bank or the international monetary fund down to national governments down to ngos as well it's how this big diffuse idea lots of people have lots of different interpretations of how that plays out at a local level and so i use south african wine industry because it's a really nice lens through which to explore the challenges and issues facing and opportunities facing south africa more broadly i also have this idea of like about practicing so i try and build on existing ideas of social practices these are things we do and say uh, broad level and I understand them as the interactions between different ideas we might have different materials or like tangible objects um, different relations and skills and all of these are brought together and made relatively stable through becoming normalized and accepted in society and they've always practice is always performed through a practitioner and that practitioner brings their own attitudes and abilities and knowledges and how, how they're feeling on that particular moment in time to how they actually do the practice. So, for example, um, obviously in the book I'm talking about, I, I look at um, things like around fair trade, around empowerment strategies within South Africa and around organics. And these all connect into that ethical consumption market and idea. And so what counts as the practice of ethical consumption? I think we all sort of, it's fairly widely understood. We all kind of accept a certain idea of what counts as ethical consumption, but the individual ethical consumer will always bring their own experiences, relations with particular brands, say attitudes to the fair trade label or particular shops or attitudes or even their budget in terms of how they do it. So we have both the practice and the, the practitioner. And it's trying to understand how, this relationship works and so through this I'm trying to understand and explore how ethics like fairness like empowerment and also a little bit about sort of some environmental ethics around sort of organics and biodynamics how they're put into practice and how they flow 
through international trade networks. And I do all this through looking at certain case studies of wine farms um, through fieldwork I did in 2008 for my PhD research and in 2015 for a Labium Trust Fellowship I was awarded. And so that way I try and I try to get a sense of how things have changed over time as well by going back to some of the same places and saying, okay, no, it's, it's been uh, seven years. How are things going? How are how are your experiences changing? Has you know, has empowerment, how's that affected your life, these engagement with this discourse or how's fair trade? How's that relationship changed over time? Underlying this empowerment and ethical consumption. We need to talk about fair trade, I think, later on. I'd first of all like to ask you just about this idea of food justice and, mm. and what that means. It's, it's a critical concept, but I'm not entirely sure that an A-level student would grasp what, what it means. I think it's, it's a sort of relatively recent concept. And I guess at A-level that like you're saying, there's more discussion around food security and in some ways that's a lot more kind of tangible because that's about the access to sort of sufficient food. And you think, okay, I can, I can understand that. Um, food justice is trying to take or set those ideas around food in kind of a broader context. So it's about challenging the socioeconomic, the environmental, the political and the cultural inequalities in food systems but also in society more broadly. So a lot of the discussions around food justice or justice in food around race, partly because they've often been conducted and engaged with food by US um, researchers and race, as we can see in sort of current affairs, is a very key facet of the sort of the American experience of society and, and interrelations within society. But more recently, there's efforts to think about class and gender, amongst other things, and how they shape our experiences, the inequalities, the injustices we might experience in food systems. So one of the um, one of the key uh, definitions, there we are, one of the key definitions is um, often used by um, some researchers called Bradley and Galt, and they say that food justice is about access to sufficient affordable, healthy, culturally appropriate food, and very importantly, respect and self-determination. So we can see that there are aspects of that food security idea within there. It's about access and about sufficient food and about food sovereignty. I'm not sure how familiar A-level students might be with food sovereignty, but that's about ideas of self-determination and sort of culturally appropriate food. So not just having food systems, ways of growing, ways of cooking, ways of eating and types of food imposed on you, it's being having that capacity to choose, having that sort of power within the system. But food justice brings in that added dimension of it's about a broader challenge to the inequalities mm. within food and society. Now, if I take my geography head off for a minute and I look at what the media portrays, there are too many people in the world and there's not enough food to go around. And actually, that's not at all true, is it? I'm right in saying, aren't I, that the world produces enough food to feed one and a half times the current global population. 
yeah, from what I've read that, yeah, it's it's not an issue about production. Although, again, lots of the food security discourses and debates connect into these productivist ideas, saying we've got hungry people, there must be a reason for this, it must be there isn't enough food, therefore we need to produce more. So we need to engage with agriculture in a very particular way. But as I said, we already produce more than enough food for the number of people we have. And so even if the population continues to grow, which it's set to do, we'll still have that food available. But there's a disconnect between the food being produced and the food being eaten. And so it becomes more of an issue about who has access and questions of power, once again, questions of justice. How is food being distributed? Where is food being wasted? And I think we're all familiar with that vague sense of guilt of you've left something in the fridge too long and it's gone a bit runny or manky and a lettuce shouldn't be runny. And so you think, oh, okay, I'll, I'll let that go. And then you've wasted food and you, you feel a bit guilty and a bit ashamed. But it's not just obviously food waste at the consumer end and at the retailer end is a significant issue. It's also sort of the waste that happens in the production system. So losses through um, rodents or insects or things being spilled or contaminated. So there's all these points within the food network where we need to focus on in order to improve that, that access to food. Gosh, that makes it even more complicated because I was going to say the key issues are, are poverty and inequality perhaps, but actually, it's much wider than that. Although I think poverty and inequality are, they are critical because they shape all or that whole experience as well. So if you're suffering from poverty, if you are suppressed or marginalised or disenfranchised within society, how can you even start to try and challenge these issues? Say, hang on, I'm, you know, I, I'm not getting access. I, you're making me have some less perhaps like food that I don't choose to have or you're imposing certain things on me. So I think poverty and inequality are, they're sort of those critical kind of underlying things in terms of how people experience these other issues around access and waste and things like that. And again, it links back to that idea of food justice as being a wider challenge because food is something which we we all share. It's something we all have in common. And so it has that capacity to bring us together to understand, to sort of reflect on trying to tackle these bigger issues because we might think about issues around distribution and access and waste in terms of food. But then I'm fairly sure there's issues around access and distribution and waste in other sectors, around energy, around water. And again, these are sort of fundamental rights that we should have access to these things and so it's these bigger questions who's included and who's excluded from particular spaces or opportunities or in food in terms of in stores who can actually get access those supermarkets or food retailers or markets and it's also about those environmental inequalities as well because it's there's all these externalities all these negative impacts of our food production systems and who actually has to experience those. Often we 
as consumers don't have to, they get sort of outsourced, get kind of pushed away. And it's not just humans who are experiencing those, it's all non-humans as well. So plants and environments and habitats and animals and oceans. So there's all these, when you start thinking about it, there's all these inequalities going on and it just becomes a very tangled and confusing issue. But I think food is so good in that way because it is something we all do or, or all should be able to do food. And so it's something we can all kind of understand. It's typical of geography that it poses as these incredibly complicated issues and wicked problems and then encourages to unpick them. But that's the beauty of, of the subject, really. That's the beauty of the subject, I'm, I'm sure, for a lot of A-level students as well, because yeah. you've dived in through one door and you've hurried through a whole lot of rooms that are all interconnected. And you've talked about how it's contested and complex. It's, um, it is. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's, I think that is one of the, it's both a joy and sometimes a frustration because sometimes you just don't know where to stop and actually trying to contain um, a study or a project or research. You think you're asking certain questions and exploring certain things, then it opens out and it unravels all these other different experiences or relations or problems and it can be a bit overwhelming, but it gives us so many great tools to try and understand the world around us. And trying to make a change as well, which I think is really important. That's really interesting because what you're saying really is that food justice, of course, is about more than food. It's about linking food issues to other and broader sustainable issues, sustainability issues. Um, But you also mentioned the, the food production issue. So is it possible? Can we develop an effective critique of current food production strategies? I think there already are critiques out there of you know current agro-industrial complexes of food production both of animals and of cereals for example so I saw something recently about you know the huge the vast majority of people on the planet rely on maybe is it three or four specific crops like rice and potatoes and might be and wheat I think maybe it's three but that we need to we need to increase the biodiversity of our crops because it's better for the planet we need to have more biodiverse systems and it's better for the environment because if you actually engage with the range of crops that are available it they're more in sort of appropriate to different landscapes different climates and so you don't have to use all the different pesticides and um, herbicides and fertilizers in order to make them work. So I think there are these these critiques out there, but also in terms of organic. So some of the things I've read actually saying that if certain organic systems can produce sufficient food, because if you think we already produce enough food for one and a half times the world's population, if we can in some way sort out that access distribution and waste problems then we can change the way we engage with how we grow our food as well again in more environmentally and socially sustainable ways but i think it's again comes back to power and the really entrenched interests here like who has a political 
interest in maintaining or an economic interest in maintaining food production systems as they currently are and what's our capacity as a society um, or as individuals or as researchers or think tanks or NGOs to actually challenge that and highlight that there are these alternatives. So, so it's food, food cooperations versus marginalised stakeholders then really mm. big power compared to little power. Yeah. And again, you see parallels with this in terms in energy or in pharmaceutical industries as well. You know, the big power versus the little power and people trying to make changes to how we go about doing things. But I think I think there are these critiques already out there. And I think there are these possibilities for things to be different, for things to change. But I think the fundamental first step is about, it's about voice. It's about empowering individuals and communities to be able to to speak about their experiences and their needs and their values and I think this is key to building those connections those relationships that we can start to maybe mainstream some of these critiques or just make space for these critiques or these alternatives to actually have a chance to prove or, or disprove some of them might be rubbish but maybe there should be the space given in you know production terms but also in provisioning and retail and how we consume food or how we distribute food to really kind of nurture and not stifle this innovation this diversity and this difference but i think it's also about not just about making space and these lovely ideas of voice and things but we actually have to engage with witnessing and listening as well so the more privileged you need to make that space and they need to actively listen rather than speaking for people who you know have been historically or are currently marginalized because it's very easy to sort of step in and woman'splain or mansplain or you know privileged splain however however you might phrase it um trying to like capture say oh so what you mean is this they're like well no but then the power relation shifts again, the dynamic, oh, maybe that is what I mean. And so I think there are possibilities. There are these critiques out there, but it's about making space and in, in a lot of different ways. Was fair trade, would it be fair to say that fair trade was an attempt to address some of those? Yes, yeah. I mean, if you look at sort of the history of the fair trade movement. It started in the post-war period as an effort to support um, some of these, particularly handicrafts producers, you know, in Europe and elsewhere to try and support them in that, those difficult post-war years and that ideas of solidarity and connection and relationships were fundamental and still are fundamental to the fair trade movement. But I guess now it's, is expanded so much as this international global network. But it still, I think it still tries to sort of engage with things. So it's still about connecting producers to consumers in transparent relationships. It's still about trying to provide a minimum price to allow producers to plan for the future because not having that ability to plan, if you don't know what price you're going to get for your crop you don't know whether it's worth investing in 
some new technology or irrigation equipment or in your home, for example. It also still has that social premium for community development projects, and it's also working towards a living wage and it's for its hired labour. So it is it has these things that we're all very familiar with, but it's also trying to push um, its producers into other positive things like the living wage. And I think what a lot of people don't realise, they think about fair trade as being about labour rights, about politics, about social side, but it also has a lot of environmental requirements as well in terms of how you engage with the environment, the chemicals you can use and can't use as well. And that's good for the labour, like the labour in terms of what they're exposed to. It's also good for the soil and the insects and the habitat. And it is about, it is trying to give a voice to those producers who haven't otherwise been heard. Although there are um, long-standing critiques, obviously, as with everything, there's always long-standing critiques, aren't there? Well, yeah, Gus, I remember doing assemblies and lessons, it must be 30 years ago, with the bar of chocolate, where you divvy up the bar of chocolate and then in the end, the producer gets half a square mm. and all the children are all going, that's not fair, that's not fair, ah, but fair trade is fair. And then since... I've read lots of critiques. Um, there was one I, I picked up in The Guardian. Um, and it, this is just a little quote from it. It says, fair trade no doubt helps poor and vulnerable producers, but it certainly is not at the service of the poorest. And it, it went on to describe um, the unequal distribution of the gains of fair trade. So mm -hmm. wh why has it, what, what have its failings been? Why is it? Why has it failed in those circumstances? And what could we do about it? Well, more, <laughs> if you can answer all of those, you can be a UN advisor. <laughs> more big questions, the spirals <laughs> of geography. Yeah, I think, yeah, there are these, like saying the, from the Guardian and elsewhere, factory doesn't help the poorest. It's setting producers up for dependency on agricultural products, not supporting them to add value, it's distorting markets. So there are all of these critiques. And there's also um, sort of concerns have been set around some governance structures within Fair Trade International. So that's the uh, governing body of Fair Trade. So they sort of set the standards and um, run the system. Like the extent to which actually producers have a voice within fair trade. But then there have been changes um, within the system trying to improve the balance between producers and um, retailers and distributors and the different fair trade labelling organisations like Fair Trade Foundation in the UK. So there are efforts going on there. But in terms of, you know, it doesn't help the poorest. It doesn't help the most marginalised because the certification costs are just they're too high. I think this is this is a long-standing issue, and fair trade has constant consultations going on with producers in all parts of the world about its prices, about its standards, and so it is trying to be responsive. It is trying to make changes. And it does provide some support in order to try and make certification more accessible. But in terms of 
actually sort of engaging with the very poorest. Often the very poorest, they are excluded by not having land because fair trade often engages with, historically with like small farmers, small producers. They, they have to have land in order to be a small producer or be part of a cooperative. And I think that's why also there have been issues around gender equality as well. Not as many women were part of, say, cooperatives. And that's because often being part of cooperative, you had to own land. And in a lot of cultures, women didn't own land. It was the men who owned the land. And so there's all these broader cultural challenges that fair trade has to engage with as well. So if the very poorest in society don't own land, they can't be engaged with through being a small producer, but they might be hired as labour on a plantation. Obviously, the idea of plantations in fair trade, that's a whole nother issue, which I'm going to sidetrack and ignore for the moment. <laughs> but um, I think that's why I think that's where the hired labour standards partly came in, in order to increase capacity. So in order to you know produce more bananas for the growing fair banana market or more cocoa so you needed to have, they see that you needed to have plantations in order to make fair trade mainstream by having the volumes of production and that also does bring in some connection to the poorest but that still has that that gap in terms of small producers who own the land but they don't own quite enough land in order to be able to afford that certification costs. Mm. So some of the producers I was working with in Argentina, they might own a hectare of vines. And that's a really tiny amount. And these are, you know, they've been handed down through the generations. These are family plots. They've been divided up, you know, every probably son, you know, got a, got a part of the land. And so they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it's more fragmented land system. And so then you've got these really teeny tiny producers. But then it's about how can you support them to create cooperatives in order to get at least some degree of volume in order to being able to engage. So, yeah, I, I think that critique has some clear basis in reality. But also at the same time, I think fair trade, it is this increasingly massive sort of bureaucratic global institution but at the same time it's still trying and so even the the small producers in Latin America who I spoke with and who had dissatisfaction with the system because they were struggling to compete with those larger producers those big cooperatives or just big farms who had the money the resources the capacity to engage and they just couldn't, the smaller producers felt they couldn't really compete. They didn't have the skills in order to have a brand manager to go off and try and sell their wine, for example. And I also spoke with some farmers in South Africa who had actually decertified. They had been fair trade and they were no longer fair trade because they felt they couldn't be both fair trade and profitable as a business. But even within those groups, there was still sort of a general sense of fair trade being a good thing, even if they weren't completely happy with it, they recognised the problems or couldn't be involved in anymore for whatever reasons, but it's seen as it's a good step in the right direction. And it's still ultimately drawing attention to the fact that there are these ongoing inequalities, ongoing power imbalances within 
global trade. And so there are obviously these inequalities and paramounts within fair trade trade as well. But at least it's trying, I think. And, and it's a move to increasing their resilience then. Yeah. Now, which brings me to another term, which would be nice for you to define. But because you talk, we, we talked right at the beginning and you mentioned in your work, this idea of social resilience. Hmm. Students will come across resilience when they're doing things like um, earthquake um, responses and how resilient a community is. So what's social resilience in this context? Hmm. So I guess, yes, yeah, students have come from it from a perspective of kind of you know, disaster management and maybe ecology and resilience itself as an idea came out of ecology um, and it sort of broadly contextualizes the capability of an individual or a community in an ecological sense of course um, to cope with stresses and change while essentially staying the same in terms of you know the same, same functions or the same structure or the same identity and so social resilience is a newer concept that draws on some of those ideas from ecology and it's about the ways or analysing the ways in which individuals, um, communities, organisations, societies adapt and transform when they're faced with environmental, social, political or economic challenges. So disaster management does fall within that. So in a sense, students are already engaging with these ideas around social resilience, but it's maybe just not framed as such. Um, so for example, like some of the elements or factors that support social resilience, um, which is often positioned as, it's not just bouncing back from a shock or a disturbance, but it's bouncing forwards in some way. So it's becoming stronger. Mm -hmm. So you're better able to cope with or resist shocks in the future. It's about you know, social capital. It's about social networks and participation and communication and those connections that people have with specific places that give them that sort of emotional capacity and capability to keep on going and keep putting stuff into their community and engaging with it. That's interesting and, and I think that was very clear. I think students who were, were coming at it from a different angle would understand that crossover quite nicely there. I want to look at something else a little different now because we talked right at the beginning about the complex picture of food justice. It's, it's such a knotty problem. But one of the things that health experts are now talking about in terms of food justice is this, it, is rising levels of obesity. And if you haven't got your geography head on, you look at that and think, these people have got too much food, what's going on, rather than there's an issue here, and it's also tied in with non-communicable diseases and the rise of those in certain communities. What's happening there? It just shows the, the complexity of food systems. So you said we see you know, obesity as a sign that all oh, people, you know, people have enough food, but it's the type of food as well that people have access to. And so I think globally, we're now seeing roughly equal proportions of those who are underweight and those who are overweight or obese. And both of these are evidence of malnutrition. So it's not that you know, in some cases there's not enough food, in some cases there's too much food, but it's 
all about sort of the nutritional value of that food as well. So food justice, some of those key elements, if we go back to that, is about health and it's about affordability. And so it's thinking what types of food do these populations or communities or individuals have? And so on average, we actually now spend less of our incomes on food than we did in the 1950s, say. So I think most recent government figures are we spend about 12% of our income on food compared to about a third of our income in the 1950s. You think, okay, you know, everything's getting, the world's getting easier, it's getting better place, okay. But that hides those experiences of the, the food insecure, which I think connects into some of these issues around rising levels of obesity, rising levels of non-communicable diseases that are diet related. Because what may be affordable and filling, which is really important because you don't want to eat and then not feel full, because what's the point of that? What's affordable and filling for these groups is not always necessarily nutritious because it's often bulked out with sugars and fat. It's highly processed. So it's a good way of getting calories and so feeling full, but it doesn't necessarily give you the other nutrients that you need. And so that then connects back into either to malnutrition and some people it manifests as obesity and other people it manifests as being underweight and deficient in nutrients in those ways fresh whole foods are more expensive i think it's in general and they but they may also be inaccessible to people because of time or transport constraints. I think we've talked about or heard about food deserts in the lit, in sort of media and policy and these are spaces or areas in our communities where there just is no access to what we might see as healthy, fresh food. So if your only access is to processed food, then, and you've, you've you're working multiple jobs, you're trying to feed your children or feed yourself, you don't have much time between shifts, of course you're going to eat the food that is accessible to you and that maybe you don't have to spend money you don't have taking you know, taking a bus or driving if you can afford a car to a place where you can buy some fresh vegetables or the energy costs in terms of storing it or cooking it so it's again it connects into these broader injustices and sheds a light on these bigger inequalities in society so yeah they ought to have more geographers working on these problems well they have but not necessarily in power because they, <laughs> you come up with plenty of solutions which big power sometimes ignores so there's enough food available glo globally we've got a challenge to ensure fair allocations. We've got to be thinking about fair provision with ex equitable access, if you like. So let's finish on a positive note. And I'm going to ask you the big, massive question. What do you see as the possibilities and opportunities for difference and change in the future? Oh, a really big question to end Ah, <laughs> Yes, I know. And then once you solve that one, you can retire and um, <laughs> we'll have solved the world's problems. Oh, well, that'd be that'd be fantastic. I think I, I could retire happy at, yeah, reaching the pinnacle of my career. But I think these, some of these things we sort of touched on earlier 
in terms of changing power relations, voice for those who haven't had a voice and actually listening to those people, those communities, take trying to actually engage with different values, different needs, not just imposing our opinions and behaviours and practices on people. And so I do think, partly because I have to think, because I don't know how you'd get up in the morning, um, that there are possibilities for change, but it needs to come both at an individual level, but also a systemic level. So there needs to be the social um, the, and the political will in order to make these changes, engage with alternatives in terms of food production or distribution or retail, um, how we actually get, get the food out there, how we engage with it, how we consider it in our lives. And so we need to, yeah, we need to shift how we, how we view and value and engage with food. But that's also tied up with how changing how we view and value and engage with the planet as a whole and each other and that sort of sense of respect on a bigger scale but in terms of practical solutions to how we can go about doing this I'm afraid I can't really offer any right now. You have you've given us lots all the way through the whole thing not one magic bullet because it isn't it's just much more complicated than that. No there can never be. Woven through what we've talked about today, we're all sorts of solutions, but they're all small solutions because there isn't one big fix-all, which sometimes, I'll be a bit politically here, but sometimes governors and, and presidents and prime ministers and, and they think they can press a button and it'll be sorted. I'll shut up now. <laughs> that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for your insights there today. We've covered not just food security, but when we shifted on to uh, health and disease, that's also an A-level topic. Okay. Students will, will come across and look at the, the, the rates of obesity around the world and how they're related. So we've, we've covered all sorts of areas that I think A-level students and their teachers would find fascinating. Thank you. Hi, it's Mark from the GA membership team. This week we have a special offer for you. The Top Spec Geography series is designed for post-16 students and provides an easy-to-follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics. These cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance and Water and Carbon Cycles and you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code Top Spec 15. That's all capital letters followed by 15. Top Spec 15. Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today. Top Spec 15. <laughs>